It's 6 o'clock. It's a Wednesday evening. And my name is Mark Riley. This is the Mark Riley Program. And, uh, you know, for many years, I never wanted to have my name, you know, out front because it... it Jason, you know, it, it seems a little egocentric. You know what I'm saying? Just, but my wife, uh, who is my most relentless promoter, said, no, no, this time you're going to call it the Mark Riley Show. But, I mean, can I? No. <laughs> so so it be, or so it is. Hope everyone's having a great Wednesday. It's a little problematic Wednesday on a lot of fronts. Let me say first, rest in peace to the great Jeffrey Holder. Dancer, choreographer, uh, a man uh, who I actually had the pleasure of interviewing. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people in my life, and, and he was one. A man whose voice was so resonant, I think he could have sh- shaken the door off its hinges in front of this studio. I mean, he, he was just an incredible, incredible human being, incredible presence. I, I think he was like 87 or 88, somewhere in there. So rest in peace to Jeffrey Holder. For those of you who do not know, the first Ebola patient who was discovered in the United States, Thomas Eric Duncan, has died. Um, they're not quite sure exactly what the situation was. Well, yeah, they are. He had Ebola. Uh, he was Liberian. He was down in Texas. And he died in isolation about 7.51 a.m. this morning at the Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital. Now, the uh, virus was detected in Mr. Duncan on September 30th. His condition worsened to critical from serious as medical personnel tried to support his fluid and electrolyte levels. Uh, And and that's a tragedy that uh, uh, this man died. The saddest part is that you've now got American politicians, including, I believe, a guy who's running for governor here in New York, who are talking about all kinds of bizarre draconian measures that probably will do nothing to halt the spread of Ebola in the United States. Quarantine all the flights from Africa. Don't let anybody from Don't let a flight from Africa come in here. They've already started screening certain flights from West Africa, and and people may not have a problem with that, uh, you know, just from the standpoint of containment. But uh, now, of course, they they, uh, have detected Ebola. I believe it was was in a nurse in Spain had the virus, and they killed the nurse's dog on top of that. So this is uh, not something to be ignored, Ebola. And uh, hopefully it can be contained both here in the United States and in Africa and wherever it may manifest itself. You know, because unfortunately, when something bad happens or if there's some kind of disease and it comes from Africa, for some strange reason... There's a, a, a paranoia about it that you don't find in terms of diseases from other places. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I said it. I'm not going to say it's necessarily always racial. But when it comes from the continent, man, it's like, oh, my God. You know, you, some of you may remember the AIDS virus and, and, and some of the hysteria around that as well. Other things going on in the news, because I started with that even though it wasn't on my story list because it happened earlier today. And I think it's important that people know, you know, some of y'all may just be coming home from work. You ride the trains, you don't get to hear the news that often. So I just wanted you to know about uh, the passing of this gentleman. Uh, Bill de Blasio, our mayor, Jason, is standing behind one Rachel Nordlinger who has been accused of being everything but a child of God. She lives with a cop killer. She omitted his uh, uh, information in her background form. Uh, Her son, who was supposedly seriously injured, was well enough to play football, and that was the reason why she got an exemption. But the mayor is standing behind Rachel Nordlinger. Now, I mention this because... God, Jason, do I have to tell people how old I am? I guess I do. Rachel Nordlinger, yeah, tw- 29, there you go. Uh, Rachel Nordlinger interned at a radio station at which I worked many, many, many moons ago, because Rachel's no kid, okay? Uh, and she was like maybe 20, 21 years old. And I, I yeah, nice, nice kid. I, and I, I, 
you know, when when you meet somebody who's young and you call them kid, it's difficult, even though now she's in her 40s, not to call her kid. I, I haven't seen her that often over the years, a couple times, uh, at functions involving Reverend Al Sharpton. More on him in a minute, because I think, uh, and, and call me paranoid if you want, but I think that the push to get rid of Rachel Nordlinger has not so much to do with her, quote, killer boyfriend or her son or the background form or whatever. It has to do with Al Sharpton. We'll get to that in a minute because the second story I want to talk about is Sanford Rubenstein, another person I've had the pleasure of talking to over the years since his association with Reverend Sharpton began back in the late 1990s. And I've interviewed him, talked to him about various and sundry cases, and he's handled an awful lot of them, gotten very rich handling an awful lot of them. He stands accused of rape. Now, see, I take rape allegations very, very seriously. Very seriously. And you cannot shake it off. You cannot ignore it. You have to investigate it and come to a conclusion with it. What we see now in the media is spin from the alleged victim's lawyers and from Benjamin Brofman, who happens to be Sanford Rubenstein's lawyer. Ah, you thought he was going to defend himself, right? No, no, no. He got a high-quality attorney to defend him against these allegations. There's all kinds of stuff about condoms being found in his place and a sex... All crap. All crap. The central question is whether or not he had non-consensual sex with this woman. But, over and above that, who is he tied to? The same person that Rachel Nordlinger was tied to. Al Sharpton. And I'm not, I, have no, I have no idea what the circumstances were around this rape allegation. I don't know. And, again, investigate it and let the chips fall where they may. But I do know, because I've been around for a minute, when there's something else afoot, if you combine these two situations together. What do I mean? Jason, what do I mean? <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Uh, the end game here, both among some media mavens and some other folks that don't like Bill de Blasio's progressive outlook on governance, is to sever the ties between Bill de Blasio and Al Sharpton. That's the end game. That's what will keep, not so much the Sanford Rubenstein story, because, again, that involves an allegation of, of criminality. But Rachel Nordlinger's story contains, as far as I know, no allegation of criminality. But they're trying to get at Sharpton, and they're trying to get at de Blasio through... Guess who? Al Sharpton. Because, you know, there, there's a part of or a segment of the powers that be in this city that have never, ever, ever, ever cared much for Al Sharpton. Now, you know, uh, and not only do they not care for Al Sharpton, they are completely baffled at how Al Sharpton has managed to get the kind of influence in both city government and, and the national government. You know, he talks to Barack Obama every now and then, and they can't figure out how it happened. So what you saw when Bill de Blasio first took office was a rehash of what the media in this town considers the worst aspects of Al Sharpton's career. Oh, Tawana Brawley. Tawana Brawley happened in 1987. Hey, Jason, do a little math for me. How old is somebody now who was born in 1987? What is that, like 27 maybe? Somewhere around there? 27. So you think when you talk about Tawana Brawley to a 27-year-old that they're going to know or care what you're talking about? That they're going to do the research? 
to find out what you mean when you say, oh, I'll show up in Tawana, bro. Get out of here. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. But now that Bill de Blasio hired Al Sharpton's former chief of staff and made her chief of staff to the first lady, Shirley McRae, now they got something. And the whole Sanford Rubenstein situation is manna from heaven for the people that want to sever. And by the way, some of them are are involved in, in law enforcement. But not all of them are involved in law enforcement. Some of them are in the media. Some of them are columnists. Some of them are whomever. But as you read some of this stuff, and, and trust me, the Rachel Nordlinger story is not yet dead. It's not. But understand why it's not. Because the end game is Al Sharpton. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, some of y'all may not believe me, but uh, keep checking it out. You'll understand, hopefully, what's going on here. Now, uh, have I, uh, Jason, I've mentioned to people before, I'm, I'm a bit of a softy, right? You know, a peacenik kind of guy, not into war. And it is on that level that I part company with our president on the conduct of foreign policy with regard to military action, warfare. I'm not the only one, as it turns out. One of his key supporters, Senator Tim Kaine, has parted company with Barack Obama about whether or not the president has the power to make war without checking with Congress first. And I got to say, I'm with Tim Kaine on this one. I got to say, he wants to kind of narrow some of the juice that the presidency has been given. Notice, I didn't say the president. I said the presidency. He's introduced legislation. He did so in May to repeal the 2002 authorization of force that paved the way for the Iraq war. He drafted an alternative last month, a narrowly tailored resolution to give Congress's blessing, I'm quoting from the New York Times here, to a war against Islamic State with a one-year time limit and explicit language ensuring the mission could not expand, either ground troops or other targets. Now, you know what? I got no problem with that. And I got a big problem with Islamic State. Make no mistake about that. But, first of all, I'm not sure these airstrikes, I'm not sure they're going to work, number one. And number two, why why is the president, I mean, I understand he's got some enemies in Congress and all. But I believe that when, when you're asking people to go to war against anybody, you need a consensus. You need to have the country behind what you're doing. And the best way to do that is to go through Congress. I'm sorry. It's the best way. Again, I know the constraints that have been placed on this president on a lot of different levels, economic, social, military, you name it. But I don't think there's anything wrong with bringing Congress into this equation. And I support Tim Kaine's effort to make sure that Congress can at the very least get a heads up as to what's going on here. And I'm not talking about, you know, bringing the head of the armed services committees of of the Congress into a room telling this is what we're doing. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about building some form of consensus. Is that too much to ask party people? I don't know. I mean, I don't want people to think I'm, I'm, I'm like soft on, uh, on Islamic State because that's not the point. The point is there's a certain way we do things and at least a certain way we say we do things. And if we're going to say it, 
We need to do it. We're going to talk to talk. We need to walk to walk. Coming up on 16 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. And uh, we're going to go to our lead story in a minute. Supreme Court has allowed gay marriage to begin in five states. Is this the victory that a lot of people have been saying it is? We're going to be joined by one of the great attorneys and LGBT activists in our city. Her name is Yetta Curland. I am proud to call her a friend. And she pulls absolutely no punches when it comes to the LGBT community and the rights that they ought to have been afforded when I was a young man, in point of fact. So we're going to talk with her about whether this is the victory that people say. The New York Times, 48 hours after the Supreme Court declined, as it turns out, to uh, take up lower court rulings that struck down bans on gay marriage in five different states. Uh, and, And then I think it was Nevada and Idaho followed suit. But the New York Times runs a piece says that the you know the Supreme Court's inaction has emboldened conservatives who want to maintain bans on gay marriage. I, I I don't understand why, but that's what the New York Times says. It must be true. Right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to our microphones attorney and noted LGBT <laughs> activist, my good friend Ms. Yetta Curlin. Yetta, how you doing? I'm well. How are you, Mark? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being here. Of course, always. Now, uh, is this the victory that everybody says it is, or at least some people say it well, is? Well, if the New York Times says it isn't, then it couldn't be. But uh, <laughs> other than that, it seems tremendous. Uh, you know, the fight isn't over until every single one of the states in this country and, and hopefully in the world recognizes equality, irrespective of sexual orientation. But um, this, is a, this is a big win. This is a big uh, non-decision. Right, absolutely. Now, uh, Yetta, let me ask you this. Uh, because you know probably better than most people how we got to this place. This is not, you know, the, Sup- the Supreme Court saying, okay, well, we're not going to take this up, and so it stands. Uh, this has been uh, an awful lot of, of, of effort on an awful lot of people. Can you chronicle that for our audience? Oh, my. Um, I mean, it's, 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 it's been decades of work, you know. And, and honestly, when we started this back in, you know, my work started in the, in the late 80s. I'm dating myself now, Mark. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, you know, back then when we started this stuff, I mean, we were just thinking, you know, you, sometimes the most important fights are the fights you, you can't win, but you've got to fight anyway. And I don't think any of us dreamed 20, 30 years ago that we'd actually see marriage equality. So the level of... of um, just just joy and happiness. You know, there's reports of people crying when they hear the news in Virginia and other places uh, with this recent decision. And that, and that has really marked the, the, the gay rights, uh, the marriage equality uh, movement, I think. So, you know, a lot of it started out state by state, uh, organizers focusing in what they deemed to be some of the more progressive, let's say, states. Interestingly, California and New York being two of them, I have to say, as history plays out, New York and California weren't necessarily on the front lines no. in, in, in these victories. It's interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. It, yeah. it, it's true. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm, old, I'm older than you yet. Well, I'm older. <laughs> I am certainly older. wiser, uh, that's for sure. But I, I, uh, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when it was illegal for mm. two people of the same sex to dance in a public space in New York City. Were you in New York City during the, uh, the Stonewall, the, the pre-Stonewall days, Mark? I was at NYU during the Stonewall days. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, obviously the world isn't perfect today and there are still struggles, but uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable and it's certainly um, interesting. And, you know, you asked how did this all come to be. We, those of us, you know, we didn't know that the, that the Supreme Court was necessarily going to go our way. It's, a, mm-hmm. most would say, a fairly conservative uh, court, although, interestingly, isn't, isn't the, uh, the construct of marriage somewhat of a, of a traditional conservative uh, uh, thing as well. So, you know, th- you know, there were different strategies, state by state. There were fed- federal legislative strategies, but unfortunately, um, what was a real setback legislatively, nationally, was the Defense of Marriage Act, don't oh, yeah. the national, yeah. and uh, you know, 
God bless, you know, uh, God bless the Clintons, but it was under the, uh, the, the, the Clinton administration where that, that uh, DOMA uh, legislation was actually passed. People think it was Bush. It wasn't Bush. It no, wasn't it was that Clinton. he was a, a huge proponent of marriage equality. He actually was working to try to um, build on DOMA and, and actually pass a constitutional amendment that would codify in the Constitution uh, discrimination and, and prohibition uh, of same-sex marriage. Well, you know, I, it's interesting because I've seen people's attitudes evolve over time. Twenty years ago, 25 years ago, when I would say on the radio, uh, I was not and I didn't say I didn't put it in the context of gay marriage. I put it in the context of gay rights. Mm-hmm. And my thing was, look, gay people are, are citizens of the United States of America and they are deserving of every right. That every other American has. I used to get people call me up and say, "I, I can't listen to you anymore. Mm. You're, you're in favor of those homosexuals." I'm like, yeah, <laughs> what's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the times have changed o- yeah. over time. Uh, what do you think is is the next step now? I mean, the court essentially refused to step in. Right. Uh, it's going to be left up to the states. Do you think there are going to be some states that are that will be uh, how best to put this laggards? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it's a good point. I mean, I think, I think first of all, what the court is saying is, listen, you know, we only, we only certify so many cases. We can only hear so many cases in a year. You, you, just, you just gave us this case. Like, give us a break already, right? On some yeah. level, courts in general, and, and certainly appeal courts and certainly the Supreme Court, don't want to have to keep rethinking itself without, you know, a little bit of time uh, to let the, the, the decisions they, they make Kind of manifest into the into the into the laws into the into the into the states and into the nation. Mm-hmm. So you know they didn't want you know that that's that was surprising to some. I actually wasn't surprised by that at all. And I think their sense is that you know the writing's on the wall. The, the, you know the, the, the nation is moving towards something. Let's not be too heavy-handed with any one of the branches of government, including the judicial branch. And uh, and, and let's see this through. Now, what happened uh, on Monday? You know that this immediately moves us to. A situation where 30 of our states are uh, recognizing marriage equality. I think Virginia is immediately, if it hasn't yeah. already. Uh, some of the, some of this also impacts some states that are still going to kind of brief it out, so to speak, fight it out with some of the ap- uh, appeals uh, within those states. So we'll see if if their respective judiciaries make decisions. And then you know we still have some states. Um, Florida, Georgia, what else? You know, Alaska, Mississippi, um, surprisingly, Michigan, it, hmm. uh, still banning uh, and not allowing same-sex marriage. So uh, let's see what happens. Either they will kind of take this as an indication uh, and legislatively change things, or they may also try to run it up the flagpole, and who knows, you know, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court may not even... You know, who knows what will happen then? So, Yeah, totally. No, we're in kind of uncharted territory. But yet, a, and our guest is Yetta Curlin, activist attorney, uh, activist uh, in LGBT affairs for a very, very long time. What does this do, Yetta, in terms of states having or not having to recognize same-sex marriages that took place in other states? Well, it's a good question. And... I think the conservative movement has tried to latch on to some of the difficulties that happen when you discriminate because everything kind of gets messed up. I don't think they've done so effectively. One of the things they try to do is that you know they, they feigned surprise that the Supreme Court didn't certify the, to hear this case because they try to spin all these different aspects to to different distinguishing variables for recognizing marriage, recognizing marriage equality. Um, it didn't work for them. Now, now then, also for for same sex marriages that were that that were um, conducted in states where marriage equality was allowed for states that now have recognition of marriage equality they have to recognize those marriages so mm-hmm. so it's the full faith and credit act you know at the end of the day they can try to make it confusing but at the end of the day it's super simple you know if 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 we recognize the laws of other states then then we recognize the laws of other states unless unless that state is expressly carving out in essence, a discrimination uh, or, or a right to discriminate against and, and not recognize those marriages, those marriages have to be recognized. Uh, a lot of times we were seeing, you know, in New York, before New York had um, uh, marriage equality, we saw folks
folks coming from Canada mm-hmm. uh, into, into New York. And, and, you know, we would say, well, first, we recognize that the Canadian marriage was valid. And now, and now in New York, we get to actually uh, allow marriages to occur here in New York. Absolutely. Yet, is this, in your judgment, the end of the ballot initiatives that sought throughout uh, not uh, not throughout the country, but in certainly many states in the country, to ban same-sex marriage is that referenda route now closed? Uh, no, nothing is closed to the to the hard uh, line conservatives. It's it's surprising, <laughs> it, and I have to give them credit, man. They are if nothing more persistent. Like it's it's kind of. Um, you know, they should move on to torturing someone else in some other arena at this point. But no, they're going to double down and fight for those remaining uh, 20 or 15 states, right? So who knows if they're going to do that. It was interesting to see, as I said, you know, California being one of them with Proposition 9. I mean, that, yeah. was, that was a hard-fought, long battle, and, and it was interesting that it ended up being decided by a judge, Judge Walker, uh, who himself was a conservative Republican, and I have to say wrote the most compelling, uh, I think, feminist-minded uh, kind, of, kind of compassionate decision in support of marriage equality. Of any of the decisions I've read, I think it was, I think it was the backbone to what ultimately happened uh, in the Supreme Court with the Edie Windsor case. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think they're going to, I think folks who, who, who have an aversion to this uh, are going to continue to do that. It's, it's really interesting because years ago, homosexuality was considered part of the, what was it then, DSM-4, DSM-3, whatever it was, the, yeah. the list of diagnostic medical uh, psychiatric conditions, that homosexuality was a, was a condition. And, and I think what, what, what we've shown today through the compassion of our straight allies, through the organizing uh, of those of us committed to these issues, is that homophobia is actually the social disease and uh, you know there are still some who suffer from it oh, yeah. but, but thankfully that number is smaller and smaller uh, when are they putting up the Edie Windsor statue I want to go visit it yeah <laughs> yeah when is that happening where is where should that be uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to commission that let's see where where's a good place I mean, I guess I was thinking like Christopher Street. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say like that. It's a DC situation, right? I mean, you know, it's a national, you know. Yeah, it's a national. But a Christopher Street would be real apropos. Maybe Christopher Street out by the West Side Highway, right? Yeah, why not? You know what? She deserves two, I yeah. think. Yeah. No, or maybe I, I one of her and one of her, her, her partner, Thea. Yeah. Something something yeah. like that. We'll have to figure that out. Let me ask you a question. As, as, a, as a straight ally, you know, what do you feel like the conversations are in straight com- communities? You talked a little bit about it earlier, but in terms of kind of acceptance and the way that 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 LGBT friends and and and, and the gay community is is talked about, discussed, and used. I think it's markedly different than it was ten, twenty, thirty years oh, ago. Oh no, it, it is. But you know, you bring up a very interesting point, Yetta, because uh, I was having a discussion uh, with someone recently. And uh, I, I actually attend a church that has had now two openly gay priests, uh, rectors. And this friend also attends a church that now has a, a, a gay rector. And the friend said to me, he said, look, I, I, you know, I got nothing against gay people. Gay people are cool. I, I support them. I supported this, you know, the, the calling of this particular rector. But I don't want to be part of what's seen as a gay church. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, understand something. I have been attending a church for the last decade that was called the gay church. Right. I got no problems with it, quite frankly. I, I don't know what the fuss is about, but I do know this. If you have a gay rector and word gets out that this is a gay-friendly church, see, because not all churches are gay-friendly, right? Mm-hmm. You will get people from the gay LGBT community who will attend that church, you know, because they may have a religious inclination Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, they may have had many uh, uh, bad memories of being ostracized by the church. Right. So if there is a place where they can go worship, where they're not only going to be not ostracized, but celebrated, they're going to jump to it. 
No, it's great. And, and, and you know, the thing is, it's interesting about what you say is, this, this is the luxury uh, of privilege, is that you kind of just fit in, right? Yeah. It, it's not like people worry about going, it's not like gay people worry about going to a straight church. You know, <laughs> and a church isn't known, hey, did you know that that, that priest or that record is straight? Uh, you know, what does that mean? What, what's the message I'm sending there by going to a straight, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's like, it's unfortunate that, that, and I think one of the ways we're still moving forward is, um, it's still, it's still, something that is noteworthy it's still not fully integrated into the fabric of of the diversity of who we are and and and, and any any differences unfortunately is is, is that way I think. Yeah, you know yeah. so so it's 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 you know some of the stuff is very insidious but those the big steps forward are the things that we need to do the work you know i wonder often what the the generation that's coming up today is is going to be with all this stuff, you know, and 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 with the internet, with 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 the type of ways of communicating, interacting, and the steps that have already been made from our generation. I I bet it's going to be a significantly different um, relationship. Oh, I, I agree a hundred percent. As the father of a seventeen-year-old, oh yeah, um, it 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 doesn't even enter her consciousness that gay people should have anything less than straight people. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, and that's not necessarily true, even of the generation before hers. So I think that, you know, th- there has been some progress made. Much needs to still take place. Yeah. You know, but I think that, uh, you know, as long as we got Yetta Curlin out here fighting a <laughs> good fight, we'll be okay. <laughs> and my straight ally, Mark Riley. There you go. Yeah, it was great talking with you. As always, we always do have to get together because I've been kind of recalcitrant lately. Uh, and, and we got to get together because we need to talk. That sounds great. All right, you take care. Talking. Take All care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yetta Curlin, attorney and LGBT activist. We've got a phone number for you to call if you want to talk about the Supreme Court decision. If you want to talk about whatever. The number is... 888-874-4888. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. My man Ike is on the line, calling from SC. Ike, how you doing, buddy? Hey, brother. Yeah, it's uh, great to hear you. I, I got a little thing through Facebook, and or somehow or another I found you. And I'm so glad, I'm glad you did, man. And, and an excellent interview, and uh, as a you know person that uh, is uh, quite a progressive, uh, you know, in in respects to my younger brother who passed away from AIDS, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, it, it's a good thing. It's it is about a good time. Thing. It's about time people have started coming to their senses, and it's about time. I, although I have to admit, uh, you know, it, it's quite hollow when you've got a bunch of people sitting on a Supreme Court. It's kind of like when they take a vote in Congress and somebody just votes uh, present. You know, look, <laughs> yeah. put yourself put yourself on the record. Put your money where your mouth is. You know, that's what working people do. That's what the honest people do. Quit mealy-mouthing and talking out of both sides, and let's get down to the facts and get down to the record. You don't have balls enough to do that, but yet you put that little weasel in there that lied us into a war when we didn't vote for him. I mean, don't get me even started by the Supreme Court. <laughs> I got you. Okay? I got you. But, you know, Ike, it's interesting you talk about this. Because for those of you who uh, don't know who Ike is, and that's probably most of you, uh, Ike is a construction worker. He lives in South Carolina. Uh, and, and he is a good person. He's what we call good people. And, I, you know, I, I thought about you when I read a story that I was going to talk about in a minute anyway, and it's called The Great Wage Slowdown of the 21st Century. Because yep. it, it, it's really the first time. And, by the way, you could probably say that about the late 20th century as well. But it's the first time that somebody's actually seemingly stepped back and looked and said, hey, you know what? Workers have really been getting screwed over the last, since, since the turn of the 21st century. The wages have stagnated, if not fallen back. There's a story uh, uh, earlier today I saw, Walmart is getting rid of health insurance for all its <laughs> yeah. part-time workers. Anybody works less than 30 hours, the government has to take care of them. Yeah, just before they start selling health insurance policies through their company. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's rather ironic, but... Uh, Oh, no. Yeah, you know me, and you know my agenda. Look, you're talking to somebody who's been living in the South for a while. 
Uh, I've been all over. Uh, I've lived in Ohio. I've lived in Pennsylvania. I've been through upstate New York. Uh, I've been into Canada. I've been around the world, uh, ex-military. You know, uh, there's a whole bunch of things to describe me, but one thing I am is I'm a labor man. Yeah. I'm, ex- yeah. I'm ex-union. My mother was a, an assistant business agent down in Florida. Uh, I worked the launch pads. Uh, you know, I served my country. I'm an American Democrat, which uh, I know these right-wingers don't understand. Yes, I'll stand and fight, and I'll protect my country, and I'll do everything, and I love the flag, and I love my country. Uh, you know, I'm not from Kenya. I'm not a communist. I'm not a Marxist, Marxist, whatever. But you know what? What kills me about the whole situation when it comes to wages is it's an economic system. Yeah. If you if you flood the system with low price labor uh, on the bottom get. end, then this is what you get. And this is where I live. And no, I won't crack twenty thousand this year. I know I won't. Really? If I crack if I crack over twenty, I'm doing great. Okay. Wow. Uh, I live I live hand to mouth. Very simple. I have no cable. I have no internet. And it's not because I live in the south. And don't get me wrong, this is not drudgery to me, okay? I can live on it. I can make it work. But there again, I don't have to have a 60-inch plasma. I don't have to have, you know, the Escalade. I don't have to have all this other stuff that people covet. It doesn't matter to me. You know the only thing that really matters to me in the end of the day? Tell me. That I can look at my work, and yeah, I'll go ahead and say it. I'm a painter. That I can look at my work and what I did for that day and appreciate what I did. There you go. And know... And know that it's quality. I gave it my all. And by God, I'm ready to do it again tomorrow. And I've been doing it for 32 years. And, and here's my point. This is my bigger point. When I watch the prices of going to college go through the roof and all these poor people getting sucked in to a bunch of debt, when I know that in other countries you go for free mm-hmm. and you come out debt-free, I, you know, I look around the world. I'm a world traveler. I'm just telling you. We can do better. And that's what bugs me about this whole deal. Don't hate me, you know, just accept the idea. And if you can't accept the idea, don't throw this line out there that, well, then you can leave and you can move to Denmark and you can move here and you can move there. No, I want it better here. And and until you take care of labor without the college degree Mm -hmm. or until you start to pay them a little respect, uh, it's never going to get any better. It's just not the same way you've run teachers down. Who wants to be a teacher these days? They're all a bunch of scumbags. You know, (laughs) this whole media thing that's gone on has been ridiculous. And, hey, I'm one of the most educated 20,000 and under a year. You probably, well, no, I can't say that. There's a bunch No, of no I'll here. say it, though. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to talk about what you make, but you're one of the most educated people I've ever had the privilege of talking to. And you're a well, straight I, talker on top of that. Yeah, and, I, I, yeah, and you know, I'll tell you the truth. I, I, there's, a, there's a guy that used to come on to talk radio in Atlanta, and he came on for years. And he only said this phrase every time he came on, every time he came on. Uh, he said, you know what, if the police and the criminal and your neighbor down the street and you would all stand up and tell the truth at the same time, it would shame the devil. <laughs> you got it, took that, me right? a lo- it took me a long time to figure it out, but by God, it's true. If everybody just stand up, and, and we, we could straighten it all out. But I swear to God, it seems like to me these days, there's just too many people don't want to do it. And, hey, Mark. Yeah. You're my brother from another mother. I'm glad you're still up in New York fighting the good fight. And uh, you know what? Don't write off the South. There's a bunch of us. I, I never here, have, but, and I never know. will. I, <laughs> I much appreciate you, the call, man. Love you, brother. Love you too, brother. You take care. You now. Yep. Ike from South Carolina giving us a call. Now, you can call from New York here, or you can call from Europe, or you can call from San Francisco, 888-874-4888, triple eight. 874-4888. And you know what Ike is talking about? Let me let me just give you a, a quick quote from this uh, great wage slowdown of the 21st century. Because I think it's it's important. Now, interestingly enough, uh, I think this David Leonard wrote this. Uh, he talks about some positive stuff. Like, you know, the fact that uh, ga- you know, gasoline prices at the pump have stayed steady or even declined. Out in Jersey, it's less than $3 a gallon for regular. Um, health costs, after plateauing just before Obamacare, have leveled off and in some cases declined, even with the fact that there are some people 
who have had to endure some problems. Uh, energy. And, and God forbid, you know, they, they take the fracking thing, which I am unalterably opposed to, but they say that fracking has to help stabilize energy costs. I, I don't know that that's worth it. Let me be very clear and very quick to say, I don't think that's worth it. But that's what this particular piece says, the great wage slowdown. But here's the, and, and you know, a, a higher percentage of kids are getting four-year college degrees. Last year it was 33.6% of 25 to 29-year-olds. That's up from 30.8% in 2008, just six years ago. So that's not so bad. Actually, five years ago. But here's, here's the interesting thing. Uh, despite all those positive trends, the real median weekly pay of full-time workers in mid-2014 would be slightly lower than it was in mid-2011, or than it was in mid-2008, before Mr. Obama took office, or in mid-2000. We're sliding backwards, y'all. We're sliding backwards. And every time somebody talks about, you know, enacting living wage legislation or raising, God forbid, the minimum wage, people jump up. And the government's got no right to tell employers what they can pay their workers. Well, yeah, they do, actually. Unless we want to live in a very different America than the one we've come to know, yes, they do. But, you know, it, it, it sounds good. And, and see, these same people will tell you, well, don't hate the rich. After all, they pay for everything. <laughs> they pay the taxes, the whole nine. It's an amazing dichotomy sometimes to hear people at the top bemoan having to tolerate people who are not at the top. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And sad. Because if they came down off their purchase from it, they find out they put on their pants the same way that poor folks, lower middle class, middle class, upper, whatever. Same way everybody does. I assume one leg at a time. One leg at a time, Jason. Yeah. (laughs) Jason don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But, again, we, the public, we have to start really kind of like taking our own future into our hands and and really kind of sort of stop expecting others, whether it be government, the private sector, Walmart, the private sector, whomever, to do it for us. If we want an environment that we can pass down to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren where there's a possibility of clean air, clean water, etc. We have to be the ones to start taking the steps to make that happen. All right? And and I've said this before on this program, and I'm going to say it again. It will take some drastic changes in the way we do things. You know, I mean, it's great to have a hybrid. That's cool. But the hybrid was supposed to be step one, not the end game. All right. We have to look in California. I read a story the other day. In some part of California, northern California, people haven't had running water in four months. They got to go get their water. And the woman that they interviewed said, you know, You really don't understand what it's like until you don't have water, until you turn on the tap and there's nothing. You take it for granted that you'll always have it, but now we don't. And I'm paraphrasing what she said, but you get what I'm saying. And, you know, sometimes, and I used to think about this when I was a kid, when I'd hear about droughts in certain places. I think, well, wait a minute, we got enough water over here. Why don't we just send it to them? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Unfortunately, water's become a commodity. We can't just send it to them because they have to pay for it. And if they don't have the money to pay for it, we ain't sending it. Just call me a commie. What can I tell you? The family of Eric Garner 
who died in a police chokehold. That's right, I said it, chokehold. His final notice to claim they plan to file a $75 million wrongful death lawsuit against the city, the NYPD, and a couple of police officers, as a matter of fact. His widow, their six children, and his mother informed city controller Scott Stringer of the pending lawsuit. And again, the city, the NYPD, and eight police officers as defendants. Suit will claim that the police violated Eric Garner's civil rights by negligently and recklessly placing him in an NYPD banned chokehold while arresting him in July. Now, Eric Garner's death has engendered an awful lot of soul searching. Of course, the media has boiled this down to whether or not Sanford Rubenstein is still going to represent the man. Or the man's family, I should say. Least of the questions that ought to be asked and scrutinized. First of all, uh, and, 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 you know, I believe that the Garner family has every right to seek some justice through litigation. No problem. And lawsuits, when it comes to the NYPD or whatever, there's going to come a point when people are going to start to say, wait a minute, is this the cost of, of, of policing in this city? That people have to settle for X number of dollars? However long it may take, you add it all up, it's a lot of money. And it's interesting that some of the same people that scream and cry about taxpayers' money, taxpayers' money, they don't scream about taxpayers' money going to pay settlements that, by the way, and they make it sound like, well, if you settle... You know, you're somehow some kind of punk or something, and you should have should have refused to settle and just go to trial. Yeah, what happens if you go to trial and a jury awards more money than you were originally willing to settle for? The family was originally willing to settle for. They make out like bandits. These are questions in terms of a culture of policing we have to ask. Is this what you want? And I hate to put it in financial terms. Because Eric Garner lost his life. But there are people who've survived encounters of alleged police brutality that have gotten paid because the cops were wrong. That doesn't mean every cop is wrong. No. Far from it. But they got a, a few of them. And a few of them are not doing their uniform justice. Now, this is a story... And I find this story absolutely fascinating because when I first read it, I said, yo, good for these people. Sayreville High School in New Jersey canceled their football season. Their varsity, JV, and freshman football seasons amid allegations of widespread bullying and hazing in that program. Now, the Sayreville High School football program in Jersey uh, has won, I think it's like three of the last four state championships. And they had a board of education meeting last night in Sayreville. Members of the football team attended, dressed up in their Letterman's jackets, etc. Because it was, I guess, the school, the, the principal of the school decided to shut the program. The board of education voted along with the administration of the school. And yes, they're going to shut the program. Well, the parents of these kids and the kids themselves went absolutely ballistic. And they said, like, how are you going to make us suffer for the actions of a couple of people? And, you know, that's a legitimate question for a high school kid to ask. But, you know, at a point, and the first thing I thought about when I read this story about Sayreville High School was about the NFL, where the stakes are a lot higher and where the money is a lot longer, in fact. And the fact that, you know, they wouldn't cancel a game over domestic violence. Not a game, much less an entire season or suspend a team for a season for the action of one or two players that got indicted or criminally charged or whatever. 
But this is very interesting to me. Largely because there may be an argument to be made that, you know, the, the, the freshman football players shouldn't have had their program shut down. Apparently, it was the freshman players who were scared to death of the older upperclassmen because they were the brunt of the bullying and hazing. Now, when you have bullying and hazing in a high school sports team, that means that that bullying, hazing, harassment, whatever it turns out to be, is part of the culture of that team. I'm sorry. And it may be that not everybody participated, but everybody was down with the program. Everybody was like, okay, well, this, this is how it goes. From the coach, and see, I place some responsibility on the coach. Coach must know what's going on. And in this instance, I believe it was some, some Facebook action that got this to public consciousness. Uh, you know, and, and there are guys who went from Sayreville to Notre Dame who came and voiced his support, flew in from Chicago. And, you know, they're talking about fairness. And they may have a point, up to a point. Me, I think if, if, you, if you really, really, really want to kill a culture that is non-productive and harmful, injurious. This is how you do it. You get rid of the program for the season, and next season, that culture will not exist, even if they have the same coach. Why? Because nobody wants to see another season shut down. That's why. It took a lot of guts to stand up in front of a bunch of people. And by the way, they've been lo- the, the uh, prosecutor in Middlesex County, which is where Sayreville uh, is located, they've launched an investigation into all of this uh, alleged hazing. It was the superintendent ended football for the year. Middlesex County Prosecutor's Office, uh, according to the superintendent, substantiated allegations that players, quote, knew, tolerated, and generally accepted Incidents of harassment, of intimidation, and bullying. Now, some parents say, well, you could have done this a different way. You didn't have to get rid of football, but you could have perhaps attacked the culture a different way. And he's probably right. But I think they attacked it the way they knew how. And... You know, what are you what are you supposed to do? If you really want to get rid of the culture, you get rid of the activity in which the culture exists. And then those who want to promote that culture got two choices. They can either excise the culture from the activity or they can go back next year and risk having the same thing happen again. And I know that's hard. I played high school sports. Not football. I played soccer. And I, I would have been heartbroken. had my t- But I, I would not have necessarily been part of a bullying culture either. Now, I went to military school for three years. So I know something about how people, because I got bullied like crazy my freshman year. I mean, Jason, dare I say it? I didn't just get bullied. I got the crap kicked out of me by upperclassmen. I was made to stand on top of a hot radiator in my bare feet for an hour. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Because I did something something that made somebody mad. You know, had a guy try to cut off my ear <laughs> with a sword because I defaced his Confederate flag. Yeah, long stories from back in the day. And, and of course, I knew I, I really, really couldn't have changed That culture. Speaking of culture, there is a report by the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United and Forward Together. These are organizations that advocate for restaurant workers. 
Jason, take a wild guess of how many female restaurant workers had experienced some form of sexual harassment from a customer, co-worker, or higher up at their place of employment. Take a wild guess. Ding! Ka-ching! 90%. And over half said they were sexually harassed on a weekly basis. What kind of... Is there is there some kind of an excuse for this? <laughs> is there something I missed? Did I not get the memo? How dare people sexually harass restaurant workers? My God. That's that's like that would be my to the ridiculous thing, but I got another one. Okay. I got one that I, I just can't I can't hold back. But I mean, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely ridiculous. Women were twice as likely to experience at-work sexual harassment in states where the servers are paid the $2.13 federal minimum for tip workers, and that both men and women were likelier to experience harassment in states that used that minimum. Why? Because the tip is contingent on tolerance of the harassment. That's why. I just thought you should know. Now, before we leave, because we're almost out of time, and Jason said I can do whatever I want, but I can't do it here after 7 o'clock Eastern. Uh, to the ridiculous. All right? Uh, and I can't. Uh, there's no way in the world I could pass this up. The Judices, y'all know who they are? Teresa and Joe du- uh, Judice, do you know who they are? They're on that Real Housewives of New Jersey, which my wife watches religiously. I never watched it. But, you know, uh, uh, they got sentenced on October 2nd on 41 counts of bank and bankruptcy fraud. The wife, Teresa, was sentenced to 15 months in the joint. Her husband, Joe, sentenced to 41 months, and he may get deported. And they have to pay 414588 bucks in restitution. And do you know what these clowns come up with? Well, I didn't know I was going to go to jail. <laughs> what are you insane? <laughs> Are you nuts? Now, here is prima facie evidence that there is no justice in the world. Now, Jason, you heard Ike, right? Hardworking guy, going to clip $20,000 this year. The Judices owe $414,000. They do an interview on Bravo. They get paid $325,000. So their restitution liability has been cut by well over a half. And for what? Because they're a bunch of grifters, fraudsters who stand behind and use their four daughters or four kids or whoever they are as human shields. That stinks. I'm sorry. That's beyond ridiculous. That stinks. Now, I don't hold any, you know, animus toward these people. I really don't. But to act like, I won't, yeah, OK, I pled guilty to this, that and the other. And I forgot how much it was. I'm figuring if they got to pay back a half mil, their fraud was probably several mil. Okay. And, you know, you got caught, you got busted. At least the the husband, Joe, said, yeah, I messed up. I did some wrong stuff. But the wife, the wife is acting like, who, me? (laughs) How did you think you managed to afford? These people had like two, three houses. And. Jason, here's the most galling part of this whole story. You know how these people got famous? Because the woman turned over a table at a party. (laughs) Okay? This is the wackiest thing since Kim Kardashian getting famous from a sex tape. All right? It's like, how does this happen? I know how it happens. It happens because people don't pay attention to stuff that might help them. It's not stuff that I'm trying to tell you you need to pay attention to. Because I don't tell people what to do. Except maybe my dog. I got to walk him or whatever. But I, I, generally speaking, I don't tell people what to do. But people do need to pay attention to their own self-interest. And with that, I'm out. Thanks to Jason Taubenfeld. We will be back to do this all over again. Next Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. I don't know what time it is on the planet Zontar, but who cares? For the Mark Riley Show, I am he. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful evening and week ahead.